Howdy, howdy, and thanks for checking out episode 76 of the Eyes Free Sports Podcast. This is your host, Greg Lindbergh. Here on episode 76 of Eyes Free Sports, our guest is a seven-time Paralympian in goalball, and she has had quite the illustrious career on the goalball court, quite the world traveler as well having competed in uh, seven Paralympic Games, as well as many other world championships and uh, other tournaments around the U.S. and certainly globally as well. So let's dive onto the goalball court and get rolling now with episode 76. All right, so my guest here on this episode of the podcast is Jen Armbruster. And Jen is a highly talented and very accomplished uh, goalball player and uh, all-around adaptive sports advocate. So Jen, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Greg. Absolutely. Really excited to, to have you on. And honestly, uh, it's an honor just uh, knowing your background. I know we've got quite a bit to get into here. <laughs> uh, so really excited to, to dive on in, dive onto that court. Sounds good. <laughs> Cool. Okay. So why don't you just talk to us about uh, where you were born and grew up and kind of your early years? Sure. Um, so as a military brat, I was actually born in Taipei, Taiwan. Um, my dad was career military. So we grew up overseas, a couple tours in Taiwan, two in Crete, Italy, and Germany. And then our stateside tours were um, Scott Air Force Base in Illinois, and then Colorado Springs, Colorado, which that's where I did my middle school and high school careers. Um, did my undergraduate in Colorado as well. Then, um, yeah, so my, my upbringing was uh, two older sisters. So my dad was fortunate enough to have all three girls. Um, always grew up playing athletics my entire life. And so with rather that was competitive or that was with our family. Um, that's just sort of how we recreated and how we competed. Right. And I'm curious as far as being a military brat, yeah. those moves, was that challenging at all? Or just talk to me about the, the dynamics of that? Sure. I, I, I loved it, um, but I didn't know any different. Right. So um, <laughs> I, you know, I loved every three or four years moving somewhere. I love the process of moving. I love packing. I love getting rid of stuff. <laughs> so <laughs> I absolutely love it. Um, it's probably the reason why I don't settle in one place for too long. Obviously, um, now I've started my family and things like that. I've been in, in one place a little longer, but um, about every three or four years have that itch to clear the house out and pack up and move on, even if it's just across town. But that whole process, um, love meeting new friends and just being part of, of, of different families and different cultures and different um, you know sport opportunities and everything. So I absolutely loved being a military kid. Right, right. Very interesting perspective. And then so I understand you were about a teenager then, maybe early teen years when you were diagnosed with your visual impairment? Correct. Yeah. So I was 14. Um, I was actually out on the softball field when I was like, we were at a family batting practice. Go figure. My mom, my dad, my sisters and I. And I was like, wow, when I close my left eye, I can't really see dad pitching. <laughs> and uh, my mom's like, oh, maybe you just got dust in your eye and things like that. I'm like, yeah, maybe. Cool. Went home, cleaned that out, um, cleaned my contacts. And my vision did not clear up at all. Um, so they sent me to an optometrist who took a look at me for about 10 minutes and sent me to the ophthalmologist up at the Air Force Academy. Um, well, they sent me to the emergency room first because um, it was a weekend. Um, and then they had me see the ophthalmologist the next, the next uh, you know, Monday through Friday type day. And that's when I got diagnosed with um, optic neuritis and was just in my right eye at that point. And about three months later had the same symptoms, same 
issue with my left eye. So I was legally blind at 14 and then I was stable for about three years. Um, after the initial episode, I had peripheral vision out of my left eye. Um, and then I had some shadows out of my peripheral out of my right eye. Um, and then four years later, or sorry, three years later, um, at age 17, I went totally blind, um, in about four hours. So, wow. Very sudden. Yeah. Mm-mm. Yeah. Two days so before really... we left for Barcelona. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Wow. So prior to 14, you had pretty much 2020 vision then. Yeah. I mean, I wore glasses, but it corrected to 2020. Yeah. Sure. Sure. Wow. Mm-hmm. And just at that, you know, the formative years, the, those teenage adolescent years, uh, just talk to me about how you kind of dealt and kind of, you know, dealt with that, processed all that mentally. Sure. Um, like I said, I was a middle schooler. Um, and I just right before I, I went to middle school that your freshman year, ninth grade was down at the middle school level. So it was my freshman year, um, last year of middle school, only kid in the district to have a visual impairment. Um, I was probably in an ideal situation, um, with my family and my friends. Um, the expectations for me didn't really change. I had great coaches. Like I said, in middle school, I was legally blind, had the peripheral vision out of my left eye. Um, and I still credit probably sports to that transition and the mental piece. Probably if I hmm. didn't have it. Um, because like I said, it started right before my, my freshman year, um, which was volleyball season. My coach totally adjusted with me because I could still serve just because the, the cadence of the toss and throwing and, and hitting and all that stuff was the same. I just couldn't play defense once it was in volley. Um, so I would actually go in and, and substitute to serve. Um, so I still got to be part of my team. Um, basketball was my sport growing up and what I was supposed to go to college on. Um, and so I was still able to, with some adjustments with my teammates um, for bounce passing and just being really honest with my coaches as far as lighting and different things on how much vision I had. Um, you know, I still played competitive basketball, you know, through my ninth, you know, ninth grade through the 11th grade year, um, until I went totally blind. So never telegraphed a pass. That was pretty awesome. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I credit a lot to, to my coaches, uh, like I said, to my family who had to set, you know, by and, and watch the bloody noses happen when my teammates would forget and to bounce pass and I'd get the chest pass coming across at face level. Um, so uh, but it was great. Cause I think my parents, they knew how much I enjoyed sport and I love that part of it. So as long as I was, you know, I was willing to, to go with the bloody noses and, and different things, they were, they were cool with it. Um, it's, you know, it was very fortunate too that that was, um, that happened in what, August, September of, of 89. So that Thanksgiving, um, was basketball season. It started, they wrote an article about me being legally blind and playing competitive basketball, um, in school and arm Bruce is a fairly unique name. And so they looked me up. Um, there was two of them in the phone book at that time when phone books used to exist. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, tracked, tracked me down and asked to, to, to try the sport of goal ball. Um, so I was really very fortunate, um, that sports wise transitioning once I actually went total, um, I had sports still at the high level, um, to, to kind of fall back on when I had to give up the, the full court basketball. Um, still played, you know, did track and field, um, throughout, you know, ninth grade through my, um, my senior year as well. So competed. Um, so I think that said sports, my family, um, not to say there wasn't times, uh, especially like when you're 16, all your friends getting their license. <laughs> um, but sure, again, my, sure. my friends were great. Like, um, part of the carpool was, it said, you know, my, my high school was 15 miles out outside of where I lived. Um, 
And so we would take turns carpooling. So on my day, instead, one of the other ones just carpooled on my behalf and I paid him gas money. So, um, so my friends were great with that, that rotation piece. Um, and just always feeling, I, I never felt not included. Um, there were some times in school that are a little bit rougher. Um, cause again, I was the first kid to go through, um, with a visual impairment. And I remember my parents staying up with me until one or two in the morning because I'd come home from practice, had to do homework. Um, and I had a CCTV at home, um, but it wasn't as quick, um, sometimes to, to get things done. So just try to save time and still get done by one o'clock or two o'clock. You know, my parents you know, stayed up and, and did that, that work with me, um, as far as transcribing and doing some of those things, because where I went to, to high school at was, like I said, it was 15, 20 miles out. And with four basketball teams practicing on one court, sometimes you had the late practice. So you couldn't come home while I had no CCTV or anything out at the school for a while. Um, but I remember having that discussion um, with my principal and my IEP. They're like, but her grades are great. So we don't need to make any adaptations. So I'm like, yeah, well, I could fail. If you'd like for me to fail midterms <laughs> so right. I can get a, so I can get a CCTV so I can get some homework done. That'd be great. Um, so, you know, and then my, again, teachers went to bat for me, my English teacher, my math teacher at that time said, you know, we wanted in our classroom too. So, you know, my school district stepped up at that point and got what I needed um, for a portable, you know, CCTV that I could use during school if I wanted to, but also after school between then and practice that cut down dramatically. So I was very fortunate because I know a lot of other stories that the school districts fight you on or coaches fight you on and, and different things that I was in a really great situation. Um, and my parents allowed me to advocate for myself and then they advocated for me as well. So, um, and then I had, like I said, teachers advocating for me. Um, so it was, it was an ideal situation through that piece of it. And, um, you know, in total, um, my senior year, that was again, another adjustment. Um, it was like I said, two days before we left for the Barcelona games, I was already on the U S team. Um, and a day before my senior year in high school. Mm. So uh, wow. again, if it's going to happen, I was probably in an ideal space um, going over as a 17-year-old punk kid for my first games. Um, <laughs> you know, sure. I was around, you know, my, my teammates were married or they were having kids or had kids or were going to have kids. They went to college. Um, so just being around other visually impaired blind folks that were successful um, absolutely helped me mentally, right? Like, I'm like, sweet, I will have a family one day. I am going to go to college um, I will be working. I, I can do all those things. So again, I can't say enough about <laughs> the timing and the, and the folks that I had around me were, were great. And again, I credit sports for a lot of that, right? Cause I would have never met those folks if it wasn't through bowl. Absolutely. No doubt. So yeah, let's get into those, the first games, awesome. 1992, <laughs> Barcelona, Spain. Yeah. Just what was it like being in that environment? Um, amazing <laughs> i guess i was a 17 year old <laughs> punk kid so um yep. and uh so to, to walk into a stadium full of thousands thousands of people was definitely overwhelming for the opening ceremonies um so there's a lot of emotions there i think for me too emotion wise you know as a kid military kid growing up like usa was what i wanted to do i want to go to college on basketball but i wanted to go into the military mm -hmm. and those dreams you know shattered a little bit um, but to be able to represent the U.S., I mean, that was a different uniform I put on, but that was pretty emotional. 
still is sure. <laughs> obviously um and nope. stuff but that was huge for sure so that wow. was um wow. definitely overwhelming and you don't forget your first one <laughs> so, uh, absolutely yeah. no doubt and did you kind of being the younger i assume were you the young, youngest one on i was the team? youngest yeah, i was the youngest woman on uh my first three teams first two teams oh wow yeah first two teams that was the youngest hmm. and i'm curious did you have any challenges like being able to relate to your teammates because of that age gap or um and there's a couple of them that were in college so i was 17 so there was a I think Dana was 20 or 21 would have been the next closest one to me. Um, and then I think Ellen was a little bit older than that. And Fozzie was a little bit older than that. And then uh, Maureen and, and, and Patty against Maureen Esposito and, and Patty against Diana were the two oldest at the time. Um, so yes and no. I mean, I, I had known all those ladies, um, you know, through competing against them. I'm at training camps and things, but um, it, it was, I, like Maureen, I, I, she's like mommy Mo, right? That's what we used to call her and stuff. But she <laughs> shook me under her wings as far as like, hey, this is what's going on, um, and just made sure that I was doing okay uh, mentally. Um, and same with some of the guy players, you know, the, the guy players at that time. It was kind of an instant family, I guess, um, with, with that support. So I never felt um, like it was weird to fit in. I guess um, I was, you know, I made this this the starting squad. Um, as a 17 year old punk kid. Um, and so just worked within, you know, I, I'd been a, a, a captain on teams and stuff in, in the past with basketball and volleyball and different things. So, um, yeah, I, I took the role of listening and learning, <laughs> right. And those guys had been around sure. it for a long time. So, um, so I never felt like I, I didn't fit in with them. Like I said, I probably more just idolized them and watched them, not just on the court, but like I said, off the court right with with the relationships with family with school um and just in navigating all those different things and just having those kind of discussions with them right right interesting um so moving forward uh 1996 i know the games <laughs> were in atlanta georgia yeah and that was also the year of the the bombing of the olympic games did that affect the paralympics at all or just talk to me about that that um, whole experience I don't think the bombing affected the Paralympics at all. Um, I think back then you got to remember that Paralympics and the Olympics committees weren't together. Um, mm. So the support that you got back then was, was a lot different. Um, you know, for that being the host country, I mean, the village was pretty much almost non-existent as far as the entertainment places and stuff that they had closed down and the food halls, um, Olympic park, it, half of it was torn down um, where you don't see that. In, in the games that followed, you know, after kind of Sydney and, and those, right. Um, you know, the, the, the partnership between the IOC and the IPC, um, made, uh, folks, it was just more equal for sure. Um, hmm. where it's back in 92 and 96 that you didn't have the same support 2000. It was closer. It wasn't there yet. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, and yep. things, um, as far as equal between the Olympics and Paralympics, um, we're now, you know, last few games for sure, you know, um, that you have seen the equal thing, rather it's coming from apparel to even training sites themselves and, um, and how they handle, you know, Paralympic sport. Right. Right. Interesting. Um, I understand you did get to serve as the, the flag bearer, I believe. Was it the 2008 games? 2008. Yeah. Beijing. Yeah. 
Wow. And what did that mean to you to, to hold that flag and really be kind of that main, you know, individual athlete uh, representing the country? All right. Now you're going to try to get me to get through this without any tears. All right, Greg. Um, so, <laughs> so, um, Beijing, uh, the fiber thing was definitely something totally different from being on the court for me, I think. And 08, um, because prior to that, you know, I've been team captain and, and things like that. And I don't know how many folks know how that process works for selection, but team captains from the different teams go to these meetings and you bring a candidate forward and there's debating and there's voting and another round of debating and voting and it keeps going. And because my team wanted to put me up, then I obviously didn't go to, to that meeting. Um, and so Jesse Lorenz off the women's team and Stephen Denial off the men's team went to represent um which, I mean, Jesse had been a teammate of mine for, for quite some time. And, and Steven, um, along with you know, Jesse, were sports camp kids at sports camps. Um, Steven was part of the, the sports camps that I used to run. Jesse was before my time running those. Um, but, but I remember walking around the village and I, my mobile rang and they, um, and it was the, you know, the, the U S delegation calling to tell me that I was going to be the, the flag bearer. Um, I obviously didn't have my guide dog or anything with me over there. Um, so like, you're gonna have to pick somebody probably to guide you in. And it was a no brainer for me. Um, and again, most folks may maybe know or don't know, you know, um, my father got to watch me play in 92 and coach kind of my local teams, um, became the assistant U S coach in 94 and took over the, the reins of the head duties in 96. Um, so he, had been coach for 20 something years. <laughs> um, and that's what I called him. Um, uh, but that moment in time, he got to be a dad. Um, right. And that was pretty, pretty phenomenal, especially again, coming from that military background to be able to lead your whole delegation in, um, with the flag. Um, that's obviously a sacrifice that my dad was willing to make it. A lot of people are, um, it was huge. For that sure. was huge for sure. Um, emotional wise. And then Beijing to go down the way it did. I know you asked a question about the flag bear, but part of that story that just continued was, you know, that was the year that we won the gold medal as well. And so it was such a fairy tale, um, start and finish to that games. And I always, even before the opening ceremonies, people were talking that, about that being my last games, which I had never said. <laughs> So it was just interesting. <laughs> um, I guess I was getting older, right? So like, it's our last one. So it's fifth one. It's got to be right. it um, and stuff. But to to end it, um, you know, to go into overtime and semis um, and to be in must-win situations for the last three games around Robin, to go into to overtime and semis and then to play China for, for the gold in China um, and to get them six to, to six to five. Um, it was like I said, it was a fairy tale for sure. Right. And then just to, to kind of wrap up that story as far yeah. as actually winning gold, you know, achieving yeah. the, the pinnacle yeah, of the sport on an international level, what did that truly mean to you? I guess like I said, it was, um, it was the pinnacle, right? It's the, the top of the top. And we had heard our national anthem before at, at, you know, different international tournaments, but to be on that stage, um, it gives you chills. Um, cause like I said, you got the, the, the top of the top. Um, and when I was a kid, like that was the dream, right. To be in the Olympics, obviously my dream was to be 
when I was little was to be in the basketball, you know, and watching Cheryl Miller and Teresa Witherspoons and those guys. Um, sure. Representing the Olympics. Um, so it came full circle, I guess, with, with the dreams of the kid um, and a different sport, obviously. Um, but definitely, like I said, it was a, a, a truly a dream come true from dreaming about that. So that's, so that's like I said, five, six, seven year old kid. So. <laughs> So yeah, I was absolutely yeah. yeah. And I'm curious. I know you've won multiple medals, you know, not only in the the Paralympic Games, but uh, I believe World Championships as yep. well, other yep. tournaments. Yeah. And where do you? I'm curious. Where do you have your medals? Are they on display? <laughs> Just talk to me about the yeah. <laughs> uh, they're not on display. Um, <laughs> I will take them to any event that people ask for them. I'll take them out in a heartbeat wherever sure. um let people handle them and do things like that i i don't have them behind glass don't have them um and it's not that i'm not proud of them it's just not i don't know like even growing up like it wasn't just something that we did like i'm more proud of you'll see more pictures of my team um right. than you're gonna see right. of, of medals um and that piece of it so they are right now i mean we do i do keep them in a safe because my family thought they should <laughs> so yep. they are in yep. there um you know when like i said they're not in a backpack or something or in a pocket to go somewhere to you know when speaking to kids or whatever but uh, yeah so they're just in my safe in my house um there for a while you know my parents had some of them and i had some of them and um uh, you know they're just traveling and moving and, and different things but they're all with me now um in portland so gotcha and so 2016 i know that was your those were your final games the 2016 paralympics yep. in rio de janeiro and did you know going into that, that that was going to be it or what was kind of the, the dynamic at that point? Um, I did. Um, actually, I actually thought 2012 were going to be my last ones. Um, in hmm. London were, well, at least mentally, I thought 2012 was going to be my last ones. Physically, I wasn't ready yet, but it, going in 2012, our kid was, you know, was a year old. And so I was yep. like, oh, in theory, you know, I don't know that I'll go past London. We'll see. Cause you know, like the next game, so he'll be five, he'll be into cool stuff, you know, those kind of things um, that I wasn't sure that that's what I wanted to do, right? It's a lot of giving up. Your family has to make <clears throat> quite the sacrifice too. So, but London, I don't want to say, I don't know if bad taste in their mouth is the right thing. I think we knew in London, we were better than where we finished. Um, so I felt like there was definitely unfinished business um, in, in London. Um, and I remember coming out of the locker room and one of our younger players come from behind me and said, this isn't it for you. You got to stay. I'm like, eh, I don't know. <laughs> so, um, and walked away then. And, um, in, in 2016, um, I was in a car accident in 2014. Um, hmm. a couple things happened in, in that year. Uh, one was the, the car accident. One was we had world championships. And so my, my kiddo was three. It was over his birthday. And I distinctly remember calling him on his birthday and saying, Hey, birthday, dude. Blah, 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 blah. He goes, Mommy, it's not my birthday. I said, It is, buddy. It's July 2nd. He goes, No, if it was my birthday, you'd be here. Mm. Okay. <laughs> um, so that hit you in the heart a little bit. Um, so uh, yeah. between that and the car accident, and honestly, I was coming home from training camps and stuff and being able to have to say no to my kid for wrestling around and throwing him around because my, my back um, had a pretty significant back injury. So, I was doing, um, and still do, um, uh, ablations and stuff every six to eight months on my back, but having to say no to my kid and, and doing that. I was, so 
I knew going into Rio, those were my last games, that I didn't want to miss my kids' birthdays. <laughs> uh, I didn't right. want to miss the the wrestling with him when I when I came home and, and things like that. That that was I was giving up too much um, that I didn't want to. So so yeah, I knew going into to to Rio, those that was it. Um, and there there are some dynamics too that were that were a little different. And um, I always said I didn't want to play if I wasn't having fun. Um, and or like I said, if I didn't feel like we were a close that we were all kind of on the same page. Um, and not that we weren't on the same page as I continued with the team. I don't think it was that. I just, it, that, that life balance and, and stuff that it wasn't the sacrifices made to, to do that, um, both mentally and physically. I wasn't, but yeah, I knew, I don't know. Yeah. I guess that's the short answer. Yeah. I, I knew going into Rio that that was, that was it. So sure. Sure. Interesting. It's hard not to go back now. <laughs> that <way. laughs> so uh, that's for sure. So. Oh yeah, yeah. But obviously, seven total Paralympics you got to compete in. Yeah, and I know that's that's definitely up there. You know, most never make it to one. So yeah, just congrats on your incredible career and uh, yeah. just a little more on goalball. I'm curious about the training. Let's start with training. What yeah. kind of training goes into being successful at goalball? Um, I think more goes into training off the court than on the court. Um. Hmm. is the conditioning and the mental part, the breaking down of the game. Um, I mean, I was a gym rat. Yeah. <laughs> um, and yep. so they're watching my opponents and stuff, but um, you know, I, I, my strength and conditioning coach at the time, you know, knowing my injuries and, and different things, but yeah, it's, it's tons of workouts a week, right. Between strength and conditioning, agility workouts, um, just endurance things. Um, and then making the time that you're on the court count. Um, as far as drilling accuracy, def- you know, defense will always be the the biggest thing I've always hung my hat on. And, you know, we did as a, as a U.S. squad for 20 years, it has always been defense, defense. You know, our philosophy was if you give up more than three goals and you shouldn't win the game um, right? And, and stuff. And it's got to be that first play, play clean, be penalty free and capitalize if the other team gives you the, the opportunity um, and, and things. And so I think we had a great formula um, for success and, um, but yeah, the training is most of my days were two a days. Um, yep. and I would work out for me. Cause like I said, I've always worked full time. Um, it was, you know, the, a lot of my cardio and that stuff was in the morning or my agility stuff was in the morning. And then my strength and slash or agility, depending on what the days were, were in the afternoons or evenings to work around my, my work schedule, um, and family schedule and, and all that. So um, but I trained probably two to three hours a day. Um, mm. Usually five days a week. And then the sixth day was goalball specific. Um, and things that didn't mean that during the week, though, that when go throw the goalball around and, and work on some of that or just work on defensive moves without a ball, right? Just diving in form and, and get that muscle memory things down. Um but yeah, actual workouts were a lot of more two a days or some days that, and also depend on the periodization where we were in the training program. Um, you know, I had my, my strength and conditioning coach that, that individualized my program, um, based on what my injury, my age and my style of play. Um, and I think maximized obviously my career for 20 something years. So I, mean, <laughs> I, I absolutely credit my strength and conditioning coach to, because it was so personalized. Um, 
and understanding right. that piece of it. Yeah, that's that's amazing. I mean, you look at like a, a Tom Brady, you know, a Michael Jordan, somebody that these athletes that do play into their forties, and yep. it's obviously pretty rare. But you know, working out and just having that support, and like you're saying, is is a huge part of it. Correct. Yeah, and like I said, the individual piece of I think is is huge too, right? Like I, people ask me all the time about a program. Like I can start you with a starting program, and I can start you with some different things, but each individual is going to be different. Um, I don't, my body type way different than some of our other, you know, we were fortunate enough through those years too, to have probably three of the top five throwers in the world, all on our team. We still defense came first, but my body type was different than Asia's body type. That's different than Lisa's body type. Um, so I think having those individual, what makes us successful, um, look different. And I think that's what was cool about the strength and conditioning coach was just, it was individual. And, and, you know, and, and maximizing what you had. So, and then our coaching staff maximizing um, your style of play and not trying to cookie cut it. And this is the one way that's, you know, that, that can work. So sure. That's such a great point that one workout, you know, for one person doesn't mean it's going to be effective for the next. Yeah. Um, so when it comes to the Paralympics, if someone listening to this is, you know, has a goal of getting to the Paralympics, whether it's goalball, whether it's, you know, track and field, um, any kind of adaptive sport, let's say, what kind of advice would you give to that individual? What does it really take to reach that level? Um, I think a couple things. One, there's sacrifice. So I think you need to make sure that you're in a place mentally and physically to make those sacrifices um, and balancing that out. Um, that knowing that there's, there's sacrifices that are going to be made, but I think it's just as important to to understand that the sacrifice that you made that balancing it out rather than, you know, it's family, it's work. Um, I think all those things can fit in, but it comes back to time management. And again, I was pretty fortunate. I think sports gives that to any individual um, if you want to take it to a competitive level. So I think at the Paralympic level, it's even a little bit more critical um, to, to be able to time manage and, and have that balance um, to be successful and to be able to go on for, you know, 20 plus years at that level. Right. Absolutely. Well said. And then I've got to ask, uh, you've been all over the world, yeah. you know, many big cities, probably yeah. some smaller cities. Yeah. Uh, what's kind of your, your favorite place you've been to? Uh, probably I, Germany's always going to be big for me and it has nothing new, obviously with goalball. Right. Um, um, I never played actually in Germany for goalball. Um, <laughs> so it's one of the countries <laughs> I didn't play in. Um, but I think, I, Europe in general, I love. I love the transportation about it. I love the people. I love the trains are on time. <laughs> you can set your clock to them. That's <laughs> neat. Um, and the transportation went to little towns to big towns, um, and the bus system. And I, and I, I probably again because that was you know second through fifth grade. So that's probably a lot of of it too. Um, and then probably touring. It's probably again I spent the most time like just being able to see small towns and big towns, and you know go to the Alps and. And, and different things. But um as far as cities, as far as visit, probably um probably Sydney as far as some of the games. Either Sydney or um or Malmo, Sweden. And again, probably Malmo again, because it's just something, you know, we, we started that tournament. So that's always a near and dear town to me. Plus you can slip over and see Copenhagen as well <laughs> pretty pretty easily. Right. So um so those are probably my top ones. And and Sydney's just amazing just because it's 
yeah, I had to, you know, got to walk across the city Harbor bridge and, you know, pet a koala and hold a wallaby and that's all <laughs> cool stuff. So, so yeah. Yep. I've never made it down under, but so, one of these years we'll love to. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I want to get to New Zealand just to get back down that way. So. Oh yeah. Yep. Beautiful. Um, as far as other adaptive sports, uh, you're definitely known for goalball, but I know you have participated in a number of other <laughs> sports. Anything else you want to mention? Um, I mean, sure. Like, uh, I mean, I'd be remiss if I don't talk about blind soccer, uh, new up and coming team <laughs> sure. sport. Um, right. I, I, I like blind soccer. I like it a lot. Um, and before it was really kind of more popularized and, you know, obviously with the U S fielding a team for 2028, um, and us just naming our first, you know, national team, um, this last, this last weekend, um, it's, it's a growing sport. It's an exciting sport. Um, like I said, I'm, I'm a big fan of team sports. I think that's probably why I, I, I love goalball and I love um, blind soccer so much. Um, but I think any adaptive sports or recreational program, um, is huge, right? Cause you need to get out and, and not just from the physical part that all the, the, the great things that happen there, it's cardiovascular, it's mental, it's emotional. It's all those benefits from just doing something, but the community that you build as well through adaptive sports is, is pretty awesome. And not just, again, the sports or the recreation process that you're doing right then. But I look at like the sports education camps and just getting kids moving and, and listening to the conversations that they have about being the only blind kid. And how did you do this algebra class or how you know, or, I didn't think about doing the debate club because it's, it's all those things that you, that you, um, you meet great people, um, and you can bounce ideas off each other and just a sense of community. I think that comes from adaptive sports. Um, and then taking it into, you know, for the younger ones, taking it back into their P classes and being able to know how to adapt mainstream sport to be a part of it. So you're part of your community at your school, um, is huge. And then, you know, as you get out of school, like, how do you, how do you be a part of the kickball team, you know, at, at the local beer right. league. Right. Um, and things like, you know, it's not going to be beat kickball, um, but you can still play kickball and here's some modifications that you need or, you know, intramural flag football or, or different things. So I think I, I can't say enough about adaptive sports. Um, I love them. Obviously right now, one of the contracts I have right now is doing, you know, an executive director of a, adaptive sports Northwest. So it's, it's cross disability as well. So it's, you know, it's blind, it's chair users, it's limb loss. Um, but just watching all that community happen has been, it's amazing. It's why, it's, it's why I've worked in the adaptive sports and rec field for 20 plus years. So. Sure. Sure. That's awesome. And you have, you do coaching as well. You have done coaching. I do. Yeah. Yeah. Still coach, still do host tournaments. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I coach a couple different sports, obviously goalball, you know, I've coached you know, you through adults and um, you know, the U S 19, U 19 team and, and different things, but. Yeah, if, you know, coach little league as well, <laughs> you know, from a kiddo and, you know, did sure. weightlifting coach, you know, down in um, Alabama and stuff and, you know, taught, you know, kayaking and rock climbing and some of those things. So, yeah, I love it. Love anytime I can get folks out and about just being active. Right, right. Nice. And I'm curious, do you have any aspirations as far as like coaching, you know, at the Paralympic level or kind of being involved, continuing to be involved in the Paralympics in some way? Um, I wouldn't be opposed to it at all. Um, I do love coaching and, and those things. Um, I think the right time and the, and the right place probably needs to happen. Um, for sure. that to happen, you know, in, in, in my life. Um, but for sure, like giving back and, and being involved in Paralympics. I mean, that's, um, part of the reason, you know, that, I'm picking up the, the blind soccer coordinating 
um, job at the USABA has been huge. It's been and it's been fun. Like it's been great to to sit there and watch the sport grow, um, and to be able to 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 watch it grow and see where it's going to be um, when we put those teams on the field in 2028 is is amazing. Um, and to give back to an organization like USABA because that's where it started for me um, is huge. So I think I will always be involved in adaptive sports, and if I can be involved at that level, absolutely. Um, you know, some other countries have asked about the whole coaching thing. I don't have it. It's not that again, I'd be opposed to that either. Cause I do love coaching. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It's pretty hard to give up that USA pick. <laughs> so, so. <laughs> For sure. Yo, yeah. And obviously family sounds, you know, yeah. definitely important to you. Absolutely. So. Yeah. Now they're getting a little bit older. It's not, you know, right. The youngest is 11. So, <laughs> so they're, they're getting right. there. So. Yup. Yup. Um, as far as social media, anything you want to mention where people can follow you or find you online? Uh, so that's probably the the thing I don't do as well at, <laughs> um, <laughs> but I am really good about, you know, accepting people on Facebook. Um, so yeah, I mean, if you, if you find me on Facebook for sure. Um, and I'm obviously pretty active in the, in the USA global arena. Um, so any of those Facebook things, if, if you throw questions out there, I'll see it as well. I follow all those. Um, and then obviously USABA's feed as well. But my personal one, I'm not on Insta or tweeting or any of that stuff. I'm only on Facebook. Right. No, <laughs> Still what I am, I know. <laughs> and things. And and again, when it, we talked about different things that we give up or stuff like that, probably social media is the one that I, I don't do as much um, because of my family and stuff. I just, time-wise, I just, I'm, I'm not on top of that the way I probably should be. Right, right. And you are married to a fellow goalball player, right? Um, so, so I've been, I'm on my second marriage. Both of them are technically goalball players. <laughs> my first mate, um, <laughs> my, my ex, um, Asia Miller still on the U S team. And that's uh writer, my youngest, my 11 year olds, um, other mom. So, um, and then my, my, my wife right now, I uh, played, uh, regionally, um, for Michigan a, a long time ago as well. Um, was not on the U S gotcha. team, but yeah, played regionally as well. Yep. In very, our teenager cool. place, so oh wow, so that's fun. Nice, definitely a goalball family. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. My <laughs> wife uh, officiates now, as well. And so oh, cool. yeah, and Ryder, the youngest, is a good little goalball volunteer right now. So, but he thinks he might want to play next year for the youth. We'll see. <laughs> so. <laughs> so awesome. Yeah, hey, getting the kids, you know, getting the young people involved is Absolutely. so important. Yeah. Yep. Cool. Alrighty. Well, again, we've been chatting with Jen Armbruster here on Eyes Free Sports and uh, really appreciate the time, Jen. Thank you so much. Really enjoyed this chat. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Greg. It was, uh, it was great to be on the show. Definitely been following it. Cool. I appreciate the support. Alrighty. Thanks again. Be sure to follow the Eyes Free Sports podcast at facebook.com slash eyesfreesports and on Twitter at eyesfreesports. Sports.